You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Tech Fan Podcast number 142, Drones, Nakamichi, and some history. Check it out. And it is tech fan number 142, uh, dollar short and a week late. I don't know how that saying goes. I don't remember. But uh, yeah, it was uh, last week, David. Obviously, we didn't do a show and pretty much my fault. We were we were all set to do it on Friday. But of course, that was Black Friday. And my wife wasn't keen on the idea of taking the kids and leaving the house for at least an hour on Black Friday. And, and she did the and same text- thing the week before, too. I mean, the year before. I mean. Yeah, well, that's right. You texted me. I said, didn't she say that last year? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, and, I, you know, I can't blame her. She, she's gone shopping on Black Friday before, but it's not her favorite thing. But if she's going to go out on Black Friday, she's going to take one of the older kids, you know, the adult children at this point, and actually shop. And the last thing she wants to do is take a 5- and a 10-year-old. And, yeah, I don't yeah. blame her. Although the five-year-old is now six, by the way. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Two days ago was his sixth birthday. Wow! I can't. I remember when he was born. Has it been that long? I know. That's what I. Well, I said the same thing about your daughter. Yeah. She's yeah. what four now? She's yeah. She'll be um, she'll be five next April. Wow. So she's four. And I was just actually, just before we start the call, uh, I was talking to my wife, and. Um, because it's late at night here, but I'm, I'm in Hong Kong for, uh, I should, probably should have mentioned that. So um, it's kind of 11 o'clock at night here, um, whereas 10 o'clock in the morning for you. So yeah. you know, I was calling to her, and it's the middle of the day there where she is. And I was, I was actually just saying to her, saying, you know, it's, in some ways it's a, a shame they have to grow up. Because, you know, a few, a few months ago, Charlotte was at a really lovely age where everything was kind of nice and lovely and... You know, you could talk to her, and she got a lot of pleasure out of a lot of things. And the last few weeks, she's turned a little bit more assertive and argumentative and surly sometimes. And you know, you kind of see them becoming, you know, young children as opposed to those, those kind of like real young children. And and in some ways, you kind of want to hold on to it the way they are, you know, even Absolutely. though they've got to grow up. Yeah, they definitely have to grow up, and uh, you got to change. Speaking of change, David. Uh, I thought a fun topic this would would be, uh, you know, I, I, I like history, but I'm also a tech person. And I thought, what if we could kind of do a history episode, not the top things, not the, you know, that's only related to the Internet, just some cool inventions, if you will, that really did change things. Yeah. Maybe they're not the biggest. Some of them are pretty big. But I thought that would be a fun topic, and we can riff on them for a little bit. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. But before yeah, we get good. to that, <laughs> uh, there was uh, some news in in the tech world this week, and I believe uh, actually it was on Black Friday, the, the biggest shopping day of the year. Jeff Bezos shows off the Air Prime. Did you see that? I did. It's yeah. A, it's a little aerial drone that they use for delivery. Well, and, they're, they're proposed to. Yeah, well, that's this, that's this kind of the ma- point. Yeah, this is many years away from reality. I think it's I think it's the dumbest thing. Uh, I was looking at all these tech sites, and they were all just like, "Oh, this would be cool." And Jeff Bezos like, "Well, we got to get FAA approval," which he was kind of telling them, "Don't get in the way of this. Um, I'm going to get the public on my side right off the bat." But. <laughs> I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, how how much does it cost for them to ship a package currently? It's not expensive at all, right? Yeah, I wouldn't imagine so. They ship a lot, right? Well, they and that's kind of the point. They ship a lot, a lot, a lot, and somehow this is going to be well. We'll get it to you faster. Yeah, but how much is shipping going to cost? And if they keep the shipping prices the same, especially for someone like me and you who are Amazon Prime members, 
shipping is, you know, nothing. Or dirt cheap. Yeah. How many packages would one drone have to deliver just to pay for itself? Well, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I've been what. In fact, funnily enough, I was thinking about maybe we should talk about drones because, I, to me, this is a, this is kind of one of these enabling technologies that's kind of sneaking up on us. It's coming out of nowhere, um, and I think. Bezos is seeing the future. I don't think this is ready for prime time. I don't think it's even necessarily a good fit for his business. But I tell you what it is. A, talking about now is excellent publicity. And and B, innovating in the way that Amazon delivers stuff to its customers, whether it's cost effective or not, is very much his bag. It, you know, it's, it smells to- like BS to me, though. Well, well, yeah. I, look, it it is BS, but I, you know what? Let's let's just take it as it is. In the fact that you know a lot of the BS that was generated around it was was follow on reporting by by the news media. And as we've talked many times on this show, um, when it comes to technical subjects, the news media often doesn't know its backside from its elbow. Sure. So let's kind of accept that there was probably an awful lot of overhyping, an awful lot of hyperbole, an awful lot of extrapolating things. And most of that, to be fair, I think was done on the basis of, well, this. how would you do this if you were going to do it tomorrow? And I don't think that is what this play is at all. This is about them experimenting with this technology because, no, it's not ready for prime time today. These drones, you know, the charges they can hold, even the big ones they're talking about using, are going to have a very limited range. And how many of their true customers are going to live within range of their um, of their delivery centers to make drone delivery effective and how are they going to solve some of the teething problems you're going to have with this in terms of you know what happens if the drone fails and drops your item what happens if it hits something what happens if it drops it and somebody else picks it up and they can't, they've got no confirmation of delivery all of these kind of you know techie stuff uh, type things about how you might, might actually build a service like that i think this is a future play and amazon has form here they spent a lot of time promoting things like Amazon Web Services, which at the time they started doing that, people went, well, what what the heck are they doing here, getting into cloud computing and all of that when, you know, this isn't their core business. Uh, And yet they've made a success of it because they they built off the back of the platforms they needed anyway. Look at how they started. When they first started, you got free delivery with Amazon for anything. You did. Yeah. And and they lost a bundle on it. And you, you know what? For Prime customers, they lose a bundle right now and they don't care. No, they make they, up for it in volume. <laughs> well, what, they do, uh, what, what Amazon, Amazon, I think what Amazon's business model, frankly, is to invest in the business by subsidizing the sort of things that keep their customers sticky. I agree they with that. Delivery so that customers keep saying, you know what, I, and, and it works. It works for me, it works for you, it works for a hell of a lot of people. It's like, I don't care what it is I want to buy. I don't care um, how much it costs. What I do care about is I know it's really easy and really reliable to buy it from Amazon. So Amazon becomes your first point of call before you think about anything else. And even if you see something in a store, half the time you think, oh, yeah, maybe I'll buy it now. Or maybe I'll check how much it is on Amazon. Even if you don't do it then, you will oftentimes end up buying it from Amazon anyway, whether it's cheaper or not, just because it's more convenient for you. That stickiness and that innovation in their customer service and the way they deliver their product to the user i think is what this drone thing is all about it's like you know this is the future and they're saying if we're in business in 15 years when the technology is better when the range is better when the gps is better when the tracking is better when and the faa is sorted and all the other things are sorted we will be doing this and you know what we'll be the leader in this because nobody else even thought about this yet yeah, I, I agree with all that, and I still think it's ridiculous. <laughs> it just It's just ridiculous. It really is. To me, I see that, and I go, stop it. Stop. You know what? I, 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 I Just before I came out here to Hong Kong, I had a real problem with Amazon, and it, it wasn't Amazon's fault. 90% of the problems you have with Amazon are things that are outside of their control. So it was my brother's birthday the week before I was due to fly out to Hong Kong. And as you know, I was meant to come out here a couple of weeks earlier and that sure. got cancelled this minute, yeah? 
So I got now. Now I got told we have to go, and you know what? You need to go as soon as because um, the project's in real trouble. We need good people on the ground who can write documentation and talk to the clients and everything. So I had to decide literally within about three days that I was coming out to Hong Kong and organize that. So what I did is it was my brother's birthday and I knew he's in London a couple of days of the week and I knew it would be easy for me to fly to Hong Kong from London. So I I called him up and I said, are you going to be in London next week? He says, yeah. So I said, right, I'm going to meet up with you on my way to Heathrow Airport from Manchester. It's about 300 miles. I can do it by the train. And I said, well, have lunch and I'll give you your birthday present. I then went and ordered the birthday present from Amazon, which was a coffee maker, a kind of a portable coffee maker. And I'm a Prime customer, so in the UK, Prime delivery, if you order before 3, 3 p.m., then you get free next day delivery. Yep. So I had it sent to my office. Um, so I ended up ordering it on Friday. And I knew there would be nobody in the office on Saturday, but that's never a problem because, you know, they come back on Monday. And I knew there would be somebody there to receive it, even though I wouldn't be. Whereas at home, you know, if I'm not there or my wife isn't there, then potentially the package can go up to the service center and then there's a problem. Right. But anyway, I'm sat in the office on Tuesday, getting ready to go on this trip on the Wednesday. I'm thinking, damn, where's a coffee maker? I'm looking around. I go and speak to the people on the desk. Did, did a package come that maybe wasn't labeled right to that? No, nothing's been. So I go check with Amazon, and no, the package isn't there. It's not been delivered. And there's a note on the thing saying, attempted delivery Saturday. So yeah. I call Amazon up, and they, and they while I'm on talking to them, they, uh, they call the shipping company, and the shipping company effectively turns around and says, oh, yeah, we tried to deliver on Saturday. There was nobody in because it was a business, um, and so we scheduled it for delivery on Wednesday. Nice. <laughs> I, say, I said to the guy on Amazon, I said, but they know it's a prime package. They know it's delivered to business. Pretty much every courier company I've ever dealt with, if they go to a business on a Saturday and it's closed, they bring it in on Monday. Yep, absolutely. Because then it's open. I said, why are they bringing it on Wednesday? Oh, well, our contract with them allows them three business days after a failed delivery. I said, what, for a prime delivery? And, you know, the, I eventually I spoke to a supervisor because I was looking for more redress than just... You know, Absolutely. sorry about that. No, I reschedule. And I, I wanted I would be too. I wanted to give them the feedback, and the supervisor agreed with me. She that she said yes, I agree with you. For prime deliveries, you you are quite right to expect that if they can't deliver on day one, that they should try and deliver on day two. Yeah, I can I can understand where you're coming from, and I explained the situation. I said, so now I'm going to go down to see my brother tomorrow, and I'm going to have no gift for him. You know, and yeah, there was an apology, and they ended up refunding me and all the, all of this sort of stuff. But the point is, the root of the problem was outside of Amazon's control, and they took the hit for it. And so that's the sort of thing that Bezos is thinking here. It's it's <clears throat> it's thinking it would be great if we controlled the whole enchilada. And that in last- which case, I think that drones is the wrong way to go, because it's a too far out, uh, b impractical. Um, see too many problems in the way, too much red tape, uh, too many other things all have to align correctly. Uh, what they should do, at least to begin with, is buy a delivery company or start their own. Start somewhere smaller, not the United States, because it would be cost prohibitive. But maybe in the UK, <clears throat> buy a, you know, I don't know what the, your your carriers over there are, but either buy one of those or start your own, and it's Amazon delivery for Amazon products. And eventually, they uh, could I maybe th- you know change it up, and they could be more of a UPS or a FedEx where they also pick up and deliver for you. But in essence, it's their delivery service. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, the thing I think they should do, certainly in the UK, where this will work because we're small, is part is partner with somebody else who's already big into logistics. So partner with a supermarket. Yeah, well, that that would be cool too, but yeah, not not every supermarket though is great at logistics. I've seen a lot of problems there. But yeah, but nevertheless, they have they already have a logistic and delivery system in place. If Amazon could layer their service on top, so that um, your supermarket has your local Amazon delivery as part of their logistics, then that, that might cool. make sense. But people and you want know, it to their house though. They do, and and the, but the point is, then they can deliver it from the house. So all the all the supermarkets in the UK now have a home delivery service. So you can go online, you can 
order your groceries online, and then they will come deliver you at a time schedule. And yeah, it's but you, within- like you said, though, Amazon wants to control A to Z. Yeah, and but partnering this, with this- somebody, which they already are with all these different delivery companies, <clears throat> obviously isn't working as well as Amazon would like it to. And instead of yeah, you, looking at pie in the sky stuff, just buy someone and you control the whole enchilada. It's it's all I you th- at that point. I, if for me, uh, maybe partnership would then lead to an acquisition. Yeah, it's a good way to test the waters, I suppose. Selling groceries, groceries is not that different from selling everything else they sell. That's true. And logistics is what they do. Let's uh, save the drone conversation for that to be the main topic on another because I'd like to research it a little bit more before we get into it too much. Yeah. In fact, funnily enough, uh, I am planning to go across the bay from uh, Hong Kong Island to Mong Kok in, um, in Kowloon tomorrow, which is where a lot of the big electronic shops are. Huh. Um, the, the, stuff I, the stuff I showed you last time I was here, you know, the computer shops and everything, there's two or three uh, computer centers that are like that. But over in Mongkok, it's kind of a whole different layer again. It's like the hub of all the shopping, and that's where all the Chinese stuff is and everything. And I'm planning on picking up, um, you know, a toy version of one of those drones. Oh, because awesome. that's enough one with a camera on and all of that. So, um, so maybe we'll talk about that next week. Cool. Take some pictures. I like to see. Yeah, sure will. Uh, let's take our first break here. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about um, an old brand that was one of my favorites and they're coming back and uh that's enough hints we'll talk about that after a word from one of our uh our partners in the stoplight network are you a movie fan a film fan well check out the international film club podcast right here on the spotlight network tim chatton and alex barker dive into a different movie every time ranging from classics to some of the newer stuff and sometimes some obscure stuff that you actually might enjoy so check out the International Film Club podcast right here on the Spotlight Network. Back here for the second of three segments on uh, Tech Fan Podcast number 142. I'm Tim Robertson. He is David Cohen. And uh, this is kind of neat, David. Um, uh, this, this amazed me when you sent, when you sent this to me because uh, I'm not aware of this. Yeah. So back in the 80s and part of the 90s, and you know, I'll be honest, until today, actually, one of my favorite electronic gadgets of all time, and I never owned one and I always wanted one, was a cassette player. Not a portable, not a Walkman, but a home theater cassette player. I know From one. Nakamichi, oh. a, yeah. a really cool company that I always had a lot of respect for, but they had this cassette player called the Nakamichi Dragon. And it was a it, it was oh, exquisite is probably the best term now all of the cheap double cassette players and you know from Kenwood and Pioneer and Phillips and whoever they all had this auto reverse that you'd push a button and the tape would simply stop and go backwards and the head would rotate over a little bit or there was two heads right some, well, some of them didn't even do that some of them yeah basically all that happened is the tape changed direction and the head could cope with that. Right. The more sophisticated ones were ones where the head would drop down and flip around. And we should probably explain because we may have listeners who don't know how to work. <laughs> so a cassette obviously was a tape, a tape, um, and a cassette player played them. <laughs> no, no, but it was the, the music was encoded as magnetic signals on the tape. Correct. And you had, you put it in, and you and and the the cassette tape had two kind of cogs that engaged, and that drove the cassette round the the tape th- over a head that came up from underneath the tape, and kind of went into this mechanism that that kind of played as the tape went over, and you could record on it as well as uh, as well as play it, and that was the first way you had home music, and of course you know even back then, the music industry, God love them hated tape they did tape let you copy music yep and so yeah there were a lot of hi-fi cassette decks hi-fi was a guy you know it really has gone away but um back then kind of the this was before computers so kind of the the geek thing for people to get into was hi-fi 
and you know you had hi-fi separates that that made a statement that you kind of knew your stuff Mm -hmm. and yet nakamichi was definitely an aspirational brand they were because i remember this this tech deck that you're talking about so nakamichi were very high-end and one of the many there was many variables you had to it's not like cd where it's all digital it's all analog many variables you had to you had to get right to make tape sound good and even the best ones sounded a bit rubbish oh yeah absolutely there's no question cassette tapes didn't sound good at all this no they didn't at the time, they were amazing. Uh, sure, because it made it allowed you to take your music with you. It was really the yeah. first true portable recorded music. Now you could always listen to the radio, but cassettes and specifically the Walkman, which um, actually kind of goes in with our invention part that we're going to talk about at the end, um, allowed you to take your music with you, and that was amazing. But the thing was, you couldn't make the tape too long, so to fit an entire album kind of like a, an actual album you had a side a and a side b and so when it got to the end of the tape you would have to eject that tape flip it around put it back in and hit play again now you can listen to the other side but what if i just wanted to flip it over really quick well they they had this thing called auto reverse and auto reverse would basically it would start like david said running the tape backwards the head would compensate and you're listening to the other side of the cassette at that point point. and that was pretty cool it was, but if you didn't get the head alignment right, then it sounded terrible. Yeah, and I, I had a few of those that did that too. And if you if you didn't have good control of the speed of the tape, you used to get like wow and flutter where the music would, would kind of move in and out. Yep. There was a lot of things that could go wrong. And one of the reasons it would go wrong is because by kind of doing this, these tapes were never designed to be played backwards. No. That was one of the things that could screw them up. And so... Uh, Nakamichi, who were very into, you know, they wanted quality. They were a very uh, high quality brand, and yet they were also innovative. And those two things don't always go together, but with Nakamichi in the 80s and 90s, it did. So they had this system that I, I yeah, everybody who ever saw it thought, oh, that's so cool. I want one. And that's so, exactly where it's, it, it began and end with me. That's so cool. Yeah. I want that. So rather than change the direction of the tape, and flip the head around or use a, a double head or anything like that. They had this deck that literally pulled the tape out. Well, the, mecha- whole, the whole cassette tray would slide cassette. out. A little mechanical Me- arm would take the cassette, flip it around. Turn it right around and then put it back into the same mechanism. So basically it was doing the same as you would do if you hit the eject button and pulled the cassette Correct. But, but it, it was, was so cool. cool. I still I want one. I I don't. I have maybe five cassettes in my entire house, and they're all cheap quality things too. I don't even know why I have them, but I do. Something about seeing an electric motor do something like do something f- large scale physical like that, particularly if it does it smoothly and yeah, well. Yeah, it wasn't clunky at yeah, all. Just, yeah. No, this this was like it was like the whole mechanism was was drenched in oil. Yes, because slick. Yeah, this wasn't, and the sound it made when it did it was very steampunk transformers. Yeah. It was just, but it not, was badass. Harsh. I mean, there was no, there was no horrible, the you know, and and let's tapes always. I mean, you picked up a tape and shook it, it rattled. It, they always sounded horrible. Yep. And this turned the tape from something that was cassette tape from something that was horrible and kind of crappy and everything and something that was cool yep. it was like watching a robot put a car together which was well technology will also come into the fore around about that time and it, because it was from J- the japanese who were, of course they were the early experts in robotics they clearly picked up some of that stuff you know it was amazing to watch it do this so that brings us to today and what i found kind of um I get a lot of PR, David. Um, companies yeah. wanting us to either mention their product or, you know, uh, review it, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I get this email. Oh, what the heck did I just do? Ugh. Let me go back. I just screwed something up on my. What is going on? Oh, done. Um, let me click that again. There we go. I get this email, and I, to be honest with you, I read two out of ten of the PR emails I even get. But this one caught my attention because in the subject line was, Nakamichi returns to the U.S. market. 
like you said, I didn't even know that Nakamichi had exited the U.S. market. But when I thought about it, I thought, you know what? I haven't seen anything from Nakamichi in any store in years. Not that I was really looking, but still, you would think that I would have noticed that. Because I had yeah. such a love for for their product and their brand all those years ago. And I never even or, I never owned one, but still, <laughs> it was awesome. So uh, they send me this PR, and they're not bringing back the dragon, obviously. <laughs> um, they've got three new products that they're selling in the United States, or they're about to sell. I'm not sure which one it is, to be honest. I didn't, I didn't look at a whole bunch of the uh, information on their website. Right. So I replied to this uh, nice PR lady, and I said, I, I used to love Nakamichi, and I briefly said you know i always wanted a nakamichi dragon growing up it was it was awesome uh, and i would love to review these products and the products are a little want want when i first looked at it it's a um, the bt hp01 bluetooth headphones okay the shockwave speaker which is a blue wave shockwave speaker system like the about the long, length of your forearm maybe a little bit smaller uh-huh. And a sound bar, which is for an entertainment center. It's a sound bar and a subwoofer. Well, she sent me two of these items. She said that the sound bar, uh, they had limited qual- quantities, and she probably couldn't get me that right away. That was, yeah. That's fine with me. But she did send me the headphones and the uh, Shockwave speaker system. And to be honest, looking at the pictures, and I sent you the link so you can see them, David, they don't yeah. look very spectacular, to be honest. They look like, you know black and chromey, you know, common pioneer make stuff that looks just like this. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I I didn't have a lot of anticipation of getting these. It was more of a nostalgic thing for me. Ooh, I'm going to, I'm going to get to play with some Nakamichi stuff and let's see if they're anything like they were back in the day. So this isn't necessarily a review because I've literally only had these things for about 12 hours now. Mm Mm-hmm. But I have opened both the packages, and I've played with both of them. The first thing I played with was the sound bar. And it's a lot heavier than you would think by looking at those pictures, David. That's the first thing that kind of jumped out at me, how heavy this is. And it's very solid. It's, it, it feels like quality. Where it looks like plastic on the sides, mm-hmm. it's kind of that rubbery plastic. Right, and it, it feels really nice in your hand holding. I mean, it. So with, yeah, with music stuff, normally heavy is better in yes. terms of. You know, yes. It kind of implies you you're gonna get something that maybe sounds okay. And so um, it had a charge because it's got the built-in batteries. I mean, if you bought anything where you had to replace the AA batteries or something, it would immediately you're like junk. Yeah. <laughs> um. It had a charge. I turned it on. I hit the pairing button. My iPhone saw it, and I started playing music through it. And it sounded great. It sound it makes it makes a lot more sound than you would expect from such a small speaker. It really does. Um, I'm not going to say it's audio uh, audio file quality, but it's really really good quality. It it just sounds fantastic. So I was impressed. The headphones are uh, of the same quality. They feel a little, uh, a little bit more plastic than the speakers do. Yeah. But this has uh, a built-in microphone inside the, so you can actually use it with your phone. I haven't tried that yet because the instructions look kind of, I don't know. The the, the buttons are all the same. I, I could see getting very confused because you can't see them to answer a call and accidentally turn it off or I don't know. Yeah, I have, I have a set. I have a Motorola set like that. You kind of get used to it. Yeah. Once you, once you remember, start remember where everything but is. These, but these are headphones. They're not earbuds. It's, I don't want. And no, these are the, over your ear. They're not on your ear. The Motorola ones have a similar. Though I have to say, for uh, I'd be interested to see how you find these because these are very reasonably priced. Um, do you have the prices pulled up right now? Yeah, they're on the uh, on the press release. So yeah, um, but my I, I've got this in. Uh, I've got this in um, Evernote, so it's not loading the oh. whole page. 
So um, the headphones are fifty-six dollars, fifty-five okay. ninety-nine. Very reasonable. The uh, the Bluetooth speaker is seventy-one ninety-nine. Wow. Let me stop you right there for these two things. Mm. The Bluetooth speaker system. I would have guessed it was at least two hundred dollars. Right. I mean, the sound quality, the build quality, um, it feels like quality product. There's, it doesn't feel cheap. There's definitely a lot of companies who have stuff above, well above $100. Well, I know I've listened to some of those. And just in my brief, I played music through it for five minutes, three songs, two songs. It sounds as good, if not better, than some of the competition that I've that we sell at Mac Specialist. It's that yep. good. Now, the headphones, I've got, I don't know, six pair of very high-quality headphones. Well, let me say, I've got one pair of headphones that are my absolute favorite. Actually, I'm wearing them right now. They're the AKG uh, K727's uh, HD model. They are my favorite headphones of all time. And that's saying something because I'm kind of an audiophile, David. Yeah. And I've got some, you know... Uh, less expensive that I've talked about on the podcast before, like that one monster brand that they're really heavy, but they sound really good. Um, I got a pair of I loves. That's yeah, it's okay. Uh, I got another Harma Carton that they actually sent me two on accident uh, without return yeah. shipping. So they didn't want me to ship it back. And I gave one to Brittany. She loves it. Um, they're okay. They're by far number three. But now I've got this pair of Nakamichi. By the way, they didn't send me return shipping for this stuff. So, <laughs> um, I only listened to one song on them. Well, two songs. I, one and a half songs. Let me put it that way. And that was right before we started talking, David. Uh, they sounded really good. Yeah. I mean, the bass response is there. The highs were there. I mean, they just really sounded good. Now, I, obviously, I can't do a full review on something that I've used for less than five minutes. Yeah. And I will be writing my reviews at MyMac.com for both of these products. But I have to say, for the price points that you told me, for these two products alone, I am very, very impressed. I don't know how much cachet the name brand has for anybody under my age, honestly. They don't, yeah. you know, a 25-year-old doesn't know what the hell Nakamichi is. But, well, that's it. We just in case, we just explain how a tape deck works. Right. There you go. <laughs> well, but that's kind of my point, though. They, they weren't in the U.S. Yeah. market for a decade. Um, the younger generation doesn't know the brand name, so they're not going to be able to cash in on, you know, the audiophile market for the younger generation at all. And I don't think there are audiophiles anymore, the younger generation. They're all used to digital music that's super compressed. Yeah, and let's and let's face it, that's that's one of the reasons that Nakamichi Nakamichi struggled. When as soon as music went digital, and by that I'm talking about the CD, yeah, all of a sudden the the stuff they were good at, which was making fundamentally flawed audio systems sound fantastic, became almost redundant because compared to even the very best tape, all the very best. All right, there's not with 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 LPs as uh, with records. There's an argument about the warmth of the sound and the sure. quality of the analog. But let's face it, even the best turntable system playing LP records did not sound as clean as a CD. As a CD. Yep. And, and the once you had a digital CD, you had no problems with wire and flutter because that controlled itself automatically because the CD could only play. Well, but Nakamichi uh, did good in the CD. Yeah, Space but you know, two. the point is, is that their their real differentiation disappeared because all of a sudden, you know, you, it was it's kind of like we sometimes talk about the difference between DVD and Blu-ray. Yeah, they were better, but the point is, they weren't so far better that it was worth paying the extra money for a lot of people who didn't pay a lot of money, yeah. and that and that was their decline. That was the decline of separates in general because all of a sudden you could pick up an all-in-one system. Or a um, a kind of a, you know a shoulder mounted system that you could take to the beach that took the, the D batteries and with a CD player all the music sounded pretty good <laughs> yeah compared yeah. to 
and and so all of a sudden the, the quality bar the, the the spread of quality became much narrower and it's much more difficult to compete in that area and i think that's why nakamichi declined uh, we're kind of back in that that area now but the problem is is that um there's an awful lot of really really cheap cheap stuff on the market and for a lot of people that's good enough i've got a blue when david speak- says cheap he means not good quality yeah, I mean, I mean, I've got a Bluetooth speaker sat in front of me here that I use when I travel. It's one of those little, uh, it's, it's a Chinese copy of those X Mini Pod things. You know the ones where you yep. they look like hamburger, you twist them and they pop up a little bit. Yep. So this yep. one with Bluetooth built in, and it's great for me when I travel because I can put it in the bathroom, this podcast while I'm in the shower and that sort of thing. But you know what? It sounds pretty awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was only about eight, ten pounds, but it sounds pretty awful. I would love to spend 40, 50, 60 pounds on something that's the same sort of size that sounds fabulous. Yeah? Because for me, that price differential is not big enough for me to say, oh, no, it's too expensive for me. Yep. You know? And that's and, where and- I think Nakamichi is doing something really cool here from just my brief encounter with these two products. And again, I, haven't, I don't have the sound bar, so I can't really compare it. Um, for the price points... And for the quality that I heard and the build quality of both of these, they should have good hits right here. Now, it is a very crowded market and there's no guarantees or absolutes in life. I I think it's still going to be an uphill battle. But for the quality of the product, the quality of the sound and the build, at those price points, these should do very, very well. My my fear is not enough people are going to know about it. Well, our listeners know about it now, and I—I've got to admit, I'm going to keep an eye out for these tomorrow. If I see a pair of the, um, a pair of the headphones, I might well pick those up. Sounded really good from what I listened to, but again, I need to really put them through the ringer. I need to crank them up, listen to them at high volume, low volume, with the TV on, ten feet away, to see if they're blocking out enough sound. There's, there's more to the review, obviously, but my initial impressions are very, very favorable, and I didn't base them on my, you know, thirty-year love affair with a Nakamichi Dragon. All that did for them is to make me want to at least try them. Yes, brand awareness. Yep, that's the only thing it was. And to be honest, I looked at the pictures and I didn't have high hopes. I really, really didn't. But now that I've actually heard them, I'm very intrigued and I'm looking forward to reviewing them. And once those reviews go live, they'll probably go live close to each other. I'll talk about it here on the Tech Fan Podcast, and uh, we'll put a link on the showroom uh, show notes page at techfanpodcast.com so you guys can go read it. But uh, so far, so good. And with that, we're going to take our last break, and when we come back, we're going to delve into a little bit of history because it's kind of fun. Be right back. Curious about Nintendo? Well, check out the Nintendo Club Podcast. This podcast is done twice a week. We dive into all things Nintendo. We dive into retro. We dive into current games, what we're playing, what cool Nintendo news is going on. Check it out here at the Spotlight Network, the Nintendo Club Podcast. We broadcast this live out every Sunday evening starting at 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out the NintendoClubPodcast.com website for more information. Segment number three of the Tech Fan Podcast. <laughs> oh man i'm wearing my glasses that'll right be, now david it's the pays will it yeah well i've got my notes on my ipad which uh you know usually when we do tech fan i don't have any notes but i actually okay. did take some notes because there were things that i wanted to talk about specifically this whole history thing that i was talking about inventions yeah. and uh you know i i'm i'm interested in doing more on that because you know i have my uh what i like i now refer to my vintage computer museum which i have under about three desks in my office yeah where i'm buying up all these old old computers that i used to envy off ebay well one of these Um, days i'll take some pictures of my office at work and you can see my vintage mac collection including the original 128k which still works Anytime we get visitors and I'm doing the uh, dog and pony show, showing them around the whole thing, the last stop as we're heading back out to the retail floor is my office. And I tell them it's a shrine for geekhood. (laughs) I've got like a Star Wars poster on the wall. Um, Very geeky stuff. A Battlestar Galactica print. Uh, A hip hop concert that took place in Philadelphia that was like the Beastie Boys, Run DMC, Grandmaster Flash. (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's different and then up on top of all my uh, my shelving units is all of these computers 
you know, a, a, a toilet seat iBook, I guess people would say it, or a Barbie seat iBook, um, uh, a Blackbird. Have you got a Mac Portable? I do. Additional but not, one? But not there. Yeah. So I have one, I have one of them. I, I need to get, I, I've got the replacement lead acid cells that go in the battery pack. I need to solder those in because it won't work without a battery. Right. And they'll be up and running again. And um, I really must get around to doing that because I really want to get that working again. So we're going to talk about some top, uh, I'm going to say tech inventions, but although one of them isn't necessarily tech, you'll see how it relates. But the first one I thought was interesting. 1958, the Boeing 707 was the world's first commercial jet airliner. And it really did, you know, uh, usher in the age of accessible mass air travel. I'm, sorry. I'm going to have to disagree with you there. Yeah. The Boeing 707 was not the world's first commercial jetliner. No, the first successful <laughs> commercial right. jetliner. We're have a smackdown here, right? We're going to have a smackdown about what, what compromises, uh, comprises successful. Because it was Boeing's first jetliner, but it was not the first commercial jet airliner. No, it was, was not. British company. Yes. Thank you. But this was the very first that was successful, that the company that made it didn't lose their ass on it. <laughs> and a lot of people bought them. Uh, yeah. Poor, unfortunately, de Havilland, who made the Comet, which was the first jet right. airliner, um, they had some um, mild problems. A couple of cra- Well, there's three crashes, I think. Yep. Um, that were to do with people not understanding how to run a jetliner, and they recovered those things very quickly and fixed them. But unfortunately, the uh, the PR damage was done, and they lost a lot of orders. And then Boeing stepped into their business. Right, it was a four-engine plane carried 181 passengers, cruised at 600 miles an hour, and can go for 5,280 miles on a full tank. Which today is yeah, okay, but in 1958. That was amazing. Well, just, I mean, the speed, the yeah. distance, I mean, it, it literally shrank the world. It did. And it was the f- first right. successful jet airliner to do that. Because up until that point, if I wanted to go to Europe, David, I'm sitting on a boat for a couple of days at least. Well, a boat, a boat crossing is about five days. Right. Uh, if you by air which was hugely expensive because you had to stop to refuel in so many places. Right. It was like a 50-hour journey. Yes. <laughs> you know, there would, be, there would be 15 or 20 of you on that plane because there was no room for anything else because you had to sleep. Yep. You know, it was it, it transformed the world. It did. And the, the jet age that we live and rely on now. We take uh, it for granted. Well, I mean, look, I came out here. It was 11 hours. Yeah. And you're yeah, in Hong Kong. I barely, I barely had time to eat and watch a few movies before I was here. Yep. And and it's six thousand miles. Exactly. It's, it's insane how easy it is. I mean, I mean, this, the seven hundred seven couldn't have made that trip, David. <laughs> You'd have been about a thousand miles short. <laughs> You'd have been landing in Vietnam to get a refill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the next one, and, and some people might wonder why I put this in here. 1959, float glass. Uh, I pulled this from. Uh, go ahead. Those people, what you're talking about? Right. Well, I've got a. I've got a uh, popular science uh, yeah. here, and it says uh, there's a reason old window panes distort everything. They were made by rapidly squeezing a sheet of hot glass between two hot rollers which produced a cheap but uneven pain. British engineer Alastair Pinkington... Pilkington. Pilkington, okay. Uh, revolutionizes the process by floating a molten glass on a bath of molten tin, by nature completely flat. The first factory to produce usable float glass opens in 1959. An estimated 90% of glass plate is still produced that way. Now think about this. You couldn't have a computer screen with a distorted image. Well, you could do, but it just wouldn't be much fun. Right. <laughs> Think about just that process alone, how it revolutionized so many um, electronics over time. Televisions. I, I think I think more than that, it, it actually shaped the way the world we see today. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm sat in a hotel room. The, te- the desk I'm sat on 
I'm sat up, has a sheet of glass yep. for for the top. I'm sat in front of a big uh, wide mirror that also is re- relies on float glass for it to work because all the mirror is a float glass with um, a reflective coating on the back. Correct. We've got, we've got more mirrors, more glass panes over by the um, over by the wardrobe where we've got floor to ceiling mirror, more in the bathroom, and then I'm on the 14th floor of a hotel that is clad from the uh, ground level all the way up to the top in flat planes of glass. Yep. I mean, it really has literally changed the way the world we live in looks. Absolutely. Yep. Which is to do. And, and I, I bet most people didn't even know anything about it. They're all oh, glass has nope. been around forever. Yes, yep. it has, but the glass really sucked up until 1959. <laughs> you know, you can't have an uneven piece of glass as a, as a window. You know, it's, it's going to be rattly. It's going to be... It, this changed everything when it came to architecture and uh, quality. I mean, well, cars. Yeah, that's what car windscreens were like before flat glass came along. That's it right. Sucked. Yeah, <laughs> it absolutely did. So, I thought that was kind of an interesting invention. I thought it was definitely worth talking about. Yeah. Next one, and of course, David does not know what these are at all. He had no preparation. Well, just before we move on from that, is that um, Pilkington is actually based in St. Helens, which is about 20 miles from where I live. Uh, and I have actually been to the factory. And, and it's, he, he's friends with Ricky Gervais now, right? <laughs> That's a different Pilkington. Oh, okay. <laughs> you probably didn't know I was going to even bring that up. <laughs> I um, tell you, when you see that stuff floating on the liquid metal, it's something else. Oh, I bet. Yeah. 1962. Communications satellite. Telstar is launching is launched as the first active communication satellite. Active is in uh, amplifying and re- retransmitting incoming signals rather than passively bouncing them back to Earth. Telstar makes uh, real a 1945 concept by science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke, who envisioned a global communications network based on geosynchronous satellites. Two weeks after Telstar's debut, President Kennedy holds a press conference in Washington, D.C. that is broadcast live across the Atlantic. That's Think about how... We, satellites have been around before we were born, David, and we completely take them for granted. Do you know the how different the world would be if every single satellite in space right now went offline? Mm, nothing would work. Nothing would work. GPS, yeah, they, your cable television, internet, yeah. everything would go down. They the, are hugely, hugely important. The world I mean, would freak out. Yeah, a lot of a lot of voice comms and stuff doesn't really go through satellite anymore because they still. I mean, to get geosynchronous, which means that the satellite rotates uh, orbit around the Earth at the same speed that the Earth rotates. So that means the satellite appears to be in a fixed point. Correct. Uh, to to get them to that to the the orbit the geosynchronous orbit is about twenty two thousand miles out, so you still get delay if you send uh, voice over that. So there's not a lot of voice goes over that now. A lot of it goes over fiber. Yep. But there's an awful lot of other communications. Not basically anything that's non time critical can often get routed through satellite. Yeah, it, it's. I I wouldn't surprise me. If, even if not as the main link, but certainly as a backup link, should this link go down, that the communications we're talking on now has um, some reliance on satellite. Oh, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. 1969. Smoke detector. Think about that. Just I wonder, Up until I wonder, 1969, there was no smoke detector, except for you know your dog barking at 2 a.m. Wake up, idiots. This house is on fire. <laughs> that was your smoke detector back then. I wonder how many people have been saved today as a result of the um, as a result of the smoke detector. Uh, I, it's incalculable. I bet, I bet. I, you, we couldn't even guess. Randolph Smith and Kenneth House patented a battery-powered smoke detector for home use. Later models rely perhaps rely on perhaps the cheapest nuclear technology you can own: a chunk of a meridium two forty one. The elements. Americum. named after America, so it's Americum. Ameri- oh, that's just lame. Uh, <laughs> the elements' radioactive particles generate a small current of electricity. 
If smoke effect, uh, enters the chamber, it disrupts the current, triggering the alarm. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. How many people have been saved because of a smoke detector? My uh, local fire department actually goes around every couple years, knocks on your door, and asks if they can install smoke detectors for you for free. Yeah. I, I, I don't think ours actually pay for them, but they, they certainly do a lot of promotion of... Uh of, of that as part of their fire prevention work. Yeah. I mean, for us, it's every time we set our clocks back or forward, we change the nine volt battery in our smoke detectors. Oh, well, that's, 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 that's what we do. That's, that's, that's a good thing to do because you know what? There's nothing more annoying than that. Uh, intermittent beep. <laughs> beep. Smoke detector makes when the battery's going down. <laughs> and it always happens in the middle of the night or no, no, it no, happens no. when you're downstairs and you're like, what is that noise? <laughs> And the problem, the problem with you was for I, certainly when I was growing up, this was always the same. It would start beeping, and you would kind of go, "Mom, Dad, you're going to do something about that?" Yeah. Oh yeah, and and six months later, it would still be beeping. Oh, uh, it was never like that for us. <laughs> Our problem was my parents never had an extra nine volt battery, so they'd have to go to the store. So it'd be beeping for half the day until someone went and bought a battery. And of course, my dad was always bitching. Oh, I did spending five dollars for a stupid battery. Apparently, in the UK, 30% of smoke alarms have either dead or removed batteries. Because that's what people do. They don't have a PP3 battery, the the rectangular batteries they use. So what they do is to stop it beeping, they pull the battery out. Yep. Yep. Very intelligent. But you're, uh, yeah, I, um, it's one of those things, really. 1970. I, I think... Just just one thing on that. They should design them so that when the battery is getting low, the things start going off. I mean, like the full the full um, smoke alarm thing, because that makes you change the battery quick enough. Or put or put one of those very long lasting batteries, uh, watch batteries, that yeah. continues to make it go off even after you pull the battery, the main one. Something. Oh, just just have a second that comes in. Hey, dumbass! Hey, change hey. battery. A bit. <laughs> you need a new battery. <laughs> hey, you want to die in a fire? <laughs> hey, genius! Hey, <laughs> go spend two fifty and get a nine volt alkaline <laughs> battery. Okay. Hey, lazy. How much is how much is the the lives of your children worth, idiot? Nineteen seventy. Year I was born. Year you were born. What do you think was invented that has significant impact on our lives today, David? 1970. Uh, the cell phone. Nope. No, cell phone. Jeez, you're way ahead of time. Well, a couple years, anyways. 1970. James oh, Russell, a scientist with Pacific Northwest Laboratory, invents the first digital-to-optic recording and playback system, i.e. digital music, in which sounds are re- represented by a strings of zeros and ones, and a laser reads the binary pattern etched into a photosensitive platter. Russell, Russell isn't able to convince the music industry to adopt his invention. But, 20 years later, Time Warner and other CD manufacturers pay $30 million patent infringement settlement to Russell's former employer, the Optical Recording Company. Yeah, Russell's former employer means he got no... He yeah, got, he got he, nothing. I gave that guy that idea Mm -hmm. yeah me too I was a fetus (laughs) now let's jump ahead three years David and no but before we do that does anybody actually Uh, need a a history lesson in digital music I mean hello it's everything I just want to say something about that 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 story shows how the world has changed Yep. because whereas back then you had an idea and people weren't convinced, and it was 20 years before it went anywhere. Nowadays, you have an idea, and in six months, it's funded, and you're doing it. Or you have an idea, you uh, patent it, but nothing happens, and then two years later, a patent troll is using your patter, uh, pattern <laughs> patents to sue everybody else. <laughs> because of just an idea, it wasn't even an actual product. Three years later, David, this one's for you. What was invented three years later? Baby food. <laughs> yes. Breast milk. Um, before that, it was that they had to gnaw the marrow out of dead animals' bones. It was pretty bruce- gruesome. Um, 1973, Motorola invents the... Cell phone. 
Did you know the the lead the guy the the guy at Motorola who led the team that invented this? You know what his first call was to? Uh, it was probably to his mother to tell him he's going to be late home for dinner. No, <laughs> it was to AT and T to say, "Hey, I'm talking to you on a cell phone." <laughs> <laughs> that I love. Yeah, but you know what? AT and T said, "Well, yeah, okay, but that's fair enough." But let's set up a business around that. Yeah. The rest was sad history. Well, not for Motorola. They did very well up until well, talk, 2007. Talk about, <laughs> I'm sure AT&T very quickly realized they could nickel and dime everybody sure. who was going to use the service. Yeah. There's no, there's no, look, it's not like Google went and bought AT&T here. <laughs> they bought Motorola. Yeah. 1979. Sony invents the Walkman. Now, there's always been some kind of... Uh, contention with some people saying well sony didn't actually invent it they saw it somewhere else first and they capitalized on it okay sure maybe true enough but for all intents and purposes david 1979 sony comes out with the sony walkman and it changed portable music it took those stupid little cassettes and ushered them into a whole new era it took your radio station made it very small in your pocket with little headphones and you're listening to music wherever you want and yeah, we're well, still... that's your music. It wasn't what the radio was playing to right. you. Because we had small transistor radios back then. But um, I think I think by then we were even starting to see the first digital tuning radios. Yes. But the, the difference was you could have your music. Yep. And you, you know, didn't have to share sudden, it and you're not blasting it out to everybody. That would come later in the 80s when boom boxes came out. Yeah, and it's still with us now by people who insist on playing music on their cell phone speaker. Or their cars driving by and blasting them at 125 decibels. Um, we're still seeing, you know, the the results from that. And not in a oh, distant cousin sort of way. You still see people listening to headphones and it's portable music. It's the same concept. Now, the delivery mechanism and the storage may be different. But the basic concept is still the same. Here's this little square thing that's in your pocket playing your music on your headphones. It really is. It's it's it hasn't changed for all intents and purposes that much. I mean, of course nowadays we have Bluetooth, so it's wireless, but it's still this little box in, in your pocket that's playing your music, whether it's on an iPod, um an iPhone, whatever it is. But it all started with that Sony Walkman. Sure did. 1978, the year before the Walkman came out, GPS, the first satellite in modern nav, uh, in the modern Navstar Global Positioning System GPS is launched. Uh, it is not until the year 2000, though, that President Clinton grants uh, non-military uses access to unscrambled GPS signals. Yeah, I, I had a a GPS handset before they turned off selective availability, which was the scrambling. Yep. Uh, and I remember you would see it, it, it kind of scrambled the signal about a hundred meter radius. So you turn it on and it would show you where you are and then it would change and then it would change and then it would change. And it did make it completely unusable for what people were using it then, which was kind of, you know, walking and going, you know, out into the great wild and all that sort of thing. It was good enough for that, but there was no way you could use it in a car. Right. Um, there was a precursor to GPS too, by the way, it was transit, which was developed in the, uh, early sixties, which is, I, I believe to guided, uh, to guide nuclear subs. So, I mean, it wasn't the very first navigation from space that would have been transit, but think, it was the I first that really kind of, the, huh? yeah, before, before that wasn't the Macaulay road Atlas. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> it, it, for submarines, I mean, the paper would get wet and. Yeah. Oh, it was a pain. 19. But you know what? Go ahead. There's a talking about, again, talking about how the world has changed. Yeah. Just, just in an exercise listeners, just do this. Yeah. Next time you've got to go somewhere you've not been before, instead of using the GPS or Google maps or your iPhone, buy a map and try and use it. It's impossible. We have lost the ability to use maps. We don't know how anymore. <laughs> no, no, seriously. I know. Look about, can't see where I am. I can't can't see where I'm going. I can't do this. Well, I'll go one step farther, David. We don't know how to use the phone anymore. No. Try calling someone that you've only called once. You don't know their numbers anymore. You don't know anybody's number. Anybody that you've got a number for in the last five years, you don't know their phone number. 
It's just a contact on your iPhone or your Android. The number is written on the thing you're trying to call them on. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You can't do it. It's like, I need two of these. (laughs) 1998, the Korean company Saheen introduces its MP man. That's the MP3 player, David. I've still got one of those. The MP man. It was great. The Diamond Rio hits the shelves a few months later. The Recording Industry Association of America sues, providing massive publicity and a boost to digital technology. Yay. Thank goodness for the RAAA. <laughs> Otherwise, nobody probably would have cared. It wouldn't have got much publicity. It would have been a little fad. Nobody cares. Yeah, Steve Jones never would have heard it. Yeah. And then they get only- sued and, oh, look, got- publicity. Exactly. 1990. Okay, David, I'm just going to give you who invented it. You tell me what he invented. And you're a Brit, so you'll get this. Sir Tim Berners-Lee. I was going to go for the other one. Ah. Tim Berners-Lee, he uh, came up with a concept for distributing information using some some uh, using under, underlined links he called hyperlinks. Yeah, he invented the World Wide Web. World Wide Web, except he he only invented it. Uh, um, don't get me wrong; he didn't. He doesn't mind that people use it for other things like porn, but <laughs> he only invented it so that the scientists he's working with could share information more easily. Yeah, and that's a whole podcast right there. Yeah, nineteen ninety five, developed by Philips, Sony, Toshiba, and Panasonic. David, uh, DVD. Correct. What was invented in 1972 by Magnavox? And I, inventing is kind of a... Yeah. But they're the first company to do this. Video recorder. Video game console. The Magnavox oh. Odyssey. I, I remember the Odyssey 2. I don't remember the original Odyssey. It was pretty crappy. Yeah. It was basically Pong. Um, of course, it would be, you know, what, seven years later before Atari really did anything with that invention when they released the Atari 2600, which, of course, changed video games forever. And not always for the better. And last, but definitely not least, David, and this changes, uh, this invention changes everything that we still use today and we still haven't perfected it. It's called the GUI. The first commercial graphical user interface was introduced in 1973 on the, X, uh, the uh, Xerox Alto. The modern GUI was later popularized by the Xerox Star, the Macintosh, Windows. <laughs> and before people forget, GUI was, is, is a graphical user interface. that You use it for every single computing device and game system you have today. Your, your DVR, that's a GUI. You're not entering yep. codes. You're not typing right. to make things. Yeah. I, I would take issue with you saying it's not been perfected, though. I'm sat here looking at tiles on my Windows 8 desktop. <laughs> and I'm, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't. Ooh. The dog, it's even the, the dog. The dog disagrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's. Uh, those, those code words that means kill, 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 and right. that word is Microsoft. And I, I don't think the, the GUI will ever be perfected because as time goes on and we have different devices, we need different types of GUIs. Look, the, the Mac GUI from the 80s would be useless on an iPhone. <laughs> it was just, you know, and, and the iPhone OS would be useless on a Windows computer. You know, there you have to have different types of interfaces for the different things that you use yeah and all you have to do really to to impress upon a youngster the importance of a gui is let them sit down in front of an apple II. <laughs> there you go there's your computer wait what are all these lines for oh well you have to program it to do anything <laughs> good luck have fun and using an Apple II or a or a PC running DOS, DOS yeah, yeah, it was a bit like it was a bit like, it was a bit like playing adventure in order. See <laughs> uh, what it was look round room, pick up object. That's basically how you run DOS on the Apple II. Absolutely. 
I'm trying to figure out which one of these is, is the most important of all the ones that I went through. What is the most important? I don't. I guess the most important you'd have to say smoke detector. Yeah. I don't. Well, I don't know. I mean, isn't sometimes the um, the the problem with kind of making a list and stuff like that is all of those things are important to different people sure, in a different way. Absolutely, but I'm talking overall. What's the most important? Some, I would definitely say smoke detector because the last time I checked, the Sony Walkman didn't save any lives. But you could say a cell phone's definitely save lives. Yeah. Uh, you could probably say float glass has saved lives as well. I would it's I would agree with you. And there's medical things. things and, that, that, yeah, there's probably a lot of things we do that you couldn't do. I, could you build a modern incubator for but for uh, for premature babies without float glass? I don't know. Uh, probably, but they would look very distorted. <laughs> Why is my baby distorted? That's just a uh, um, Yeah, I don't know. I would, I'd probably have to say smoke detector, though. But as far as, you know, importance, not, not life-changing, probably communications, which is satellites. That's yeah. probably, I mean it had the biggest impact of all of those things. Well, maybe, I don't know though. Would you, would you put that over and above transatlantic flights? I don't know, but it's fun. It's fun to think about. Love to hear what the listeners think of all of the inventions we talked about today. Which one do you think is the most important and why you can leave feedback at techfanpodcast.com. Leave a comment there, or you can send an email to either Tim or David at techfanpodcast.com you can also leave voice message if you go to our website there's a little thing that says leave a voice message click that record a message and we will uh, play it right here on the podcast and we hope you guys go up to our page on iTunes leave a review even if it's hey you guys are dumb and a one star rating that's fine too let us know that you're uh, out there listening you're enjoying the show we'd really appreciate that and we will be back in one week with another exciting episode of Tech Fan.